Well, welcome to the Apologetics.com radio show. Can you tell, guys, I'm excited about our, our topic yeah. uh, tonight? Yeah. But I'm Harry Edwards, your host for the evening. This is a show in which we uh, like to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. And I'm joined by my friends this evening, Jacob, Daniel, and Lenny Esposito. Now, before we get into the topic tonight, I'd like to remind our listeners that we are supported entirely by your generous donations. So if you are a first-time listener, live or, or on our podcast, special welcome to you. If you find our shows valuable and wish to see it continue, please donate by going to our website, www.apologetics.com, and click on the Donate button. Your generous contributions will help us remain on the air. All right, gentlemen, before we start, and I'm looking at you guys, all right? I want to know how you guys are doing. Happy New Year. It's been a while since we've uh, been together here in the studio physically. Um, I want you to give our listeners an update on the various projects you're involved with. Let's start with Jacob. Jacob, how are you doing, and and how is your ministry going? I'm doing really good, Harry. Happy New Year to all our listeners. It's already... uh, to be heading towards the end of <laughs> January. Know. It's still Happy New Year because it's January. But you know what? I'm so excited that this year has started with uh, a lot of busyness in ministry. And I'm praising God for the opportunities that he's opening for Heritage Council. That's the name of our ministry. Um, doing a lot of podcast. It's called Equal Justice Podcast. Mm. Basically helping the church to understand uh, the current challenges that we are facing in our culture and how to respond to that. Um, uh, Heritage Council is teaming up with uh, Ratio Christie in doing a um, couple of events, one of which is coming up in February, end of February, uh, for the church leaders in particular, mm. uh, to basically help them understand what is critical race theory and what is the impact that it is having on churches. And also with Crew uh, uh, coming up, a major event with students at MIT, Oh, great. And speaking oh, wow. on Christian exclusivism, which I'm looking forward to. So, All right. Yeah, keeping busy. Dr. Jacob Daniel, been busy. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Lenny, how Hi. are you doing? Good, good. How's Come Reason Ministries? Uh, we're doing good. I'm uh, digging in. Uh, critical theory has been a big part of you know the culture lately, and so uh, understanding that uh, and then just more broadly how culture is being shaken, shifted, and changed, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about tonight. So that's been exciting. Hopefully you'll have some uh, virtual events coming up uh, soon, and a couple of them that I'm really kind of uh, excited about will be some virtual tours in Jerusalem. Mm. So I have a, a friend who is a tour guide lives in Jerusalem, and we're going to be doing like live Zoom events where people can join and, and, and even though Sitting you can't... Sitting at their home? Yeah, or you get, can sit at your home and, and, and the tour guide in, will walk through the sites of Jerusalem. Now, you can't get into a lot of the, the interiors of the... Because they're locked down with uh, COVID as well, but we can... We, we're talking about the, looking at the Valley of Hinnom, going through the Dung Gate, you know, uh, walking along the Garden of Gethsemane, all of these kinds of things, and and explaining, you know, mm. kind of a virtual getaway. So those will be those will be kind of exciting, and how they have theological implications, stuff like that. And, as well. and you have a a non virtual, like a physical tour that's coming up. That's what, right. A couple of years, right? That's right. In 2022, I'm yeah. going to take a, a, a group of folks to uh, through the footsteps of the apostles. So we're going to start off in in Turkey and visit uh, some of the cities of the seven churches, uh, go through uh, where Paul was in, you know, uh, we'll visit Patmos, uh, hit Greece and, and stand on Mars Hill, and as well as the Parthenon and some of these places, uh, Delphi, where the oracle was spoken of, and, and uh, end up in Rome. And so we'll go through all of the different kind of key ideas of the first century, look at uh, some certain uh, archaeological events. And there's a there's actually even a three-day cruise wrapped into the whole thing as That's well. That's amazing. So, yeah. That's amazing. It'll be a lot of fun. So start So, so no one up. is trying to deconstruct the narrative there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and we, we will be giving expert uh, guidance, stuff that you don't get. These, these are not your general package tours. This has been specifically handcrafted by me. 
to go to places that you don't normally go to uh, you, and see things that you don't normally see. So it's, it, it should be really exciting. Sounds great. Sounds good. All right. Well, tonight we want to talk about a subject that might not be very popular, especially among our friends who engage the church and the public in apologetics. I believe that there is a shift in the culture currently taking place that renders the current apologetics methods or tools a little dull. In, in, for example, in woodworking, right, it, it's like using your favorite saw, and because of wear and tear, it needs some sharpening. You don't necessarily get rid of your tools. We just need a refresh. So the tried-and-true methods no longer work. Again, it's not that they aren't good methods. It's just not the best tool to get the job done. So could it be that our Christian apologetics methods have become dull? I guess that's kind of like the question I'm asking, and that's why, you know, hence the title, Things to Consider When Doing Apologetics in a Post-Christian World. You know, I when I started typing post-Christian, uh, I think my fingers started to freeze because I'm not—I don't want it to be that. Uh, I struggled. I'm still fighting that because, as you know, it carries some negative connotations. It uh, sounds hopeless. Uh, but I don't want the show to be about hopelessness or despair. We'll definitely get to hope in the end, and uh, we will do our best to cover that. But what do I mean by our apologetics methods have become dull? I, I was, um, I told you, Jacob, I was tempted to um, give the show a title, Issacharic Apologetics in reference to the men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what they should do. This is in reference to First Chronicles chapter 12, 32. Uh, it's interestingly enough, I, I don't know if our listeners uh, have considered this, but the men of Issachar in First Chronicles were part of David's mighty warriors. Uh, interesting, right? They were part of David's mighty men. And if you read the account, these were like the Navy SEALs at the time, green berets, like one man would slaughter like 300. I mean, that's, that's insane. That's superhuman. But it's interesting, right, that they had these guys, the men of Issachar, and I guess their role was they knew the times. And so they understood the times, and they knew what to do. Uh, hence, you know, that, that would— Make it a nice title, right? Isakaric Apologetics. Maybe we should write a book on that. Uh, <laughs> I'm also implying that we need a reminder to contextualize our message to our current culture. Was not Paul attentive to this? Acts 17, Paul speaks the language of the Athenians, quotes their philosophers and poets. And I'm saying that we need to do the same. All right, so... Uh, let's start, you know, typically I like to uh, invite callers, um, and if you know our number, I guess nothing's going to prevent you from calling, but we're not going to focus on callers this evening because we want to make sure that we uh, get all the time we need to explain some of these hard concepts. I say it's hard because it, it's not that theoretically they're hard to understand. Uh, anyone can get it. it. I say it's hard because... It's just out of our consciousness. We don't talk about these things. And that's precisely part of the point of our show, is we need to bring to the surface a lot of things that we have taken for granted, especially as apologists, uh, and we think that we're doing the right thing when our listeners are actually not hearing us. And I believe that uh, God has given us wisdom, to be able to use our resources wisely. So l let's go to this. Um, gentlemen, um, what, what's going on? Why, why is it not a shock anymore that I'm writing post-Christian? Oh, well, we, <laughs> we are definitely in a post-Christian uh, world. Uh, it, it reminds me, and, and let, me, let me parallel it, let me analyze, analogize it. Go for it. Uh, by looking at the late 1980s Soviet Union, right? You had Mikhail Gorbachev. For those of you that were, were around back then, 
the Soviet Union was still considered a feared enemy, right? And, you know, had missiles pointing at them, right? War games, films came out and mutually assured destruction and all of this. But internally, the Soviet Empire, the, the concept of communism was basically done. Okay, you had perestroika. Gorbachev was trying something new. Why would they switch to a new openness, which is what perestroika means? Uh, what happened? It's because they knew that it wasn't working, that the fundamental foundations of communism had crumbled already. It just, it just couldn't execute itself, though people wouldn't want to give up on the idea, especially those in power. And so they tried this idea until finally what usually happens is there's something external that indicates blatantly that the the whole concept, the whole project is done. And that was the fall of the Berlin Wall mm-hmm. in 1989. After that, ollie ollie free. Everybody said, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And that's where we are today. We are in the equivalent of perestroika with the Christian nationalism and the Christian ideas of the U.S. The underlying, the underlying, the fundamental foundations are no longer there. People, what are what are some of those foundations? Uh, the idea that there is an objective moral value to which all folks should adhere. The idea that one should live for others instead of oneself. That 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 there are ideas worth dying for. There are things that are more valuable than life, and those things are abstractions like liberty. Uh, those kinds of concepts that were foundation even in the United States no longer holds sway in the minds of people. It's get my son out of the war. It's how can my government better me, right? It's the opposite of the John Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It's, that's been flipped on its head. Uh, but all of these concepts come out of a Christian understanding of putting others before self, because that's the essence of love. And those are gone. It's, it's self has become the fundamental yardstick against which we measure everyone else. So, so Lenny, yeah. um, I do agree with uh, part of your analysis uh-huh. on that. So if I may push it a little. So while it was being dismantled uh, in Soviet Union, we do see that, um, and they did suffer uh, because of uh, not having that foundation anymore. Yeah. But it did sprout out in other parts of the world, and we are seeing as kind of a kind of resurgence of it or, or nostalgia about it. And there's a there's an attempt of reviving it still there around the world. So, so with regards to the church, if I say that yes, in the Western context, we do see that there is a dismantling happening in terms of the foundation of the Christian right. values. But I do see that on the promise of Christ that the gates of hell shall not be built right. against the church, the church is on solid ground. If you see globally, it may yes, not look like absolutely. Western. It may not look like Western, but as Christians, we must be confident that the increase of his government remains around the world yes, in that I, sense. And, and, and I, I completely agree with that. My, my analysis is specific to the culture in which we are living mm-hmm. in. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and culture is the inward understanding, values, concepts. And our culture today is not the same culture that it was 200 years ago. Mm. And the culture that we had 200 years ago and the Christianity that was practiced then was not the same as the Christianity practices in the 14th century. Mm. So, so while Christianity will always remain in Africa. I, I believe you're, you're, you will start seeing missionaries coming from places like Nigeria, and, and those are going to be, just like in the uh, 19th century, England was 
sent all over the world with missionaries. In the 15th century, France and Portugal were sending missionaries out of the Catholic Church. Uh, I think you're going to see that in mm. Nigeria and, and places of that sort today. But, and that's happening right now. Yes, I, absolutely. I know that. Yeah. It's, it's exploding. But what I'm saying is in the culture in which we find ourselves, post-Christian culture, which is the, the question. Yeah. Here in the U.S. too. Here in yeah. the U.S., we've lost value for those foundational elements. Mm. Therefore, they no longer figure in for us. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I'm curious, maybe we can uh, cite some examples <laughs> that I think everybody could could agree on. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the uh, things that you see that l- lead you to that conclusion? Uh, we've, well, for example, symbols. Symbols are specifically communicative to the society. And it started with, well, we don't need to be married. It's just a piece of paper. And so once you do that, then all of a sudden marriage becomes secondary to your, how does he make you feel? How does she make you feel? And that feeling then becomes secondary to physical response, which becomes sexual. So we lose the idea of symbols, the flag. Yeah, yeah, good one. I was going to mention that. Yeah. So now you have, if you have someone who doesn't understand the symbolism of the flag and will kneel or burn the flag as an act of protest, is it that surprising that you would then have another person who would see the symbol of a building of government and violate that? How can you, if you're violating the flag which is a symbol, complain about the person who's violating a government building such as the Capitol, which is also a symbol. Once you've lost the idea that, right? And, and it's not just government symbols. It's not just marriages. We don't put on a shirt and tie to go to work anymore. We don't, it's, it doesn't matter what, why do you, I see people in pajamas at the grocery store? And, and we laugh at that, but really, People used to do that because that was a part of manners. Manners meant we respect other people. Other people don't want to see me like this. And that's what manners were, was putting others first. We've lost that. That's just gone. And and Carl Truman, who – thanks, Lenny, for that um, uh, recommendation. So we are going to be talking about uh, a couple of his articles, which we would recommend uh, uh, his articles to you, our listeners. But he he likes uh, doing this – favorite thing of his where he goes, why isn't it a shock anymore to hear people say, uh, I am trapped, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Those things no longer shock us, you know? He said that in in his grandfather's day, or it wouldn't have even Mm -hmm. been understood. You wouldn't be able to make sense of that statement. That's right, that's right. And I think you touched on that. Uh, He says that, he talks about how we used to be out, outward-oriented, right. but now we are inward-oriented. Right. And he gives a good example. I like that, actually. Earlier, if you ask someone, uh, why did you work? How did you find satisfaction in your work? Yeah. The answer would be because it puts food on my table. Yeah. It take, I, I'm able to take care of my family. That brought contentment and satisfaction in one's mind mm-hmm. and being. Whereas if you ask someone today, why do you work? They would say that because it brings me pleasure, or it, this is what I'm called to, or this is what it, it makes me feel, you know, uh, content about the job that I do. Right. It's self-focused rather than the other-focused. Right. So that's perfect uh, uh, transitioning into Carl Truman's uh, article dated November 9th. Uh, he talks about the rise of psychological man. So a, a lot of uh, a lot of the activities and thought patterns. Uh, that we see in culture now are just inwardly mm-hmm. focused. And uh, it's amazing that um, a historian can can have this insight. And, and really, amongst apologetic circles, we're talking about relativism, really. It's what matters, uh, how you feel, is more important than reality. So if someone, one of you guys could explicate the, the whole psycho, uh, psychological turn to the self and what... Uh, Truman, Carl Truman, means by that? Well, yeah, Truman, so Truman is basing most of his commentary off of uh, Philip Reif. And Reif is, is, his work has 
work through this. And Truman is careful to say that he doesn't necessarily believe that this is um, exclusively descriptive, that there's other issues, there's other ways that you could look at humanity. But, but by and large, you can say that humanity, civilization, let's be clear, civilization w- was initially political. So the Athenians, Aristotle, Plato, they worried about the polis. The Romans were very much about the city. It was, it was Rome uberalis, so to speak. Um, you were either a Roman or you were a barbarian, right? Mm. Uh, that's, that was simply how it was. Or you were, you were Jewish or you were Gentile. It was, it was that kind of differentiation. It was all about the political structure of us versus them. And you did everything you could to support that community because that's where your safety, that's where your livelihood was. After that, the rise of the church, uh, man stopped being city-oriented, universal brotherhood of man, that kind of thing. There is no Jew, Jew, there is no Greek. So we became religious man. And the world that we understood revolved around the church and the functions of the church. Uh, In, say... The Industrial Revolution Age, what happened was uh, work became primary and man became more focused in economics. And it was economic man. How do we conquer? We, you know, you have this uh, enlightenment period where we've, and, and Car- Charles Taylor talks about this imminent frame where we start to look at the natural versus the supernatural. We segregate and separate those. And so, Religion gets put off to the side, but it's about the here and now. How can I harness this stuff that I have around me in order to uh, do better? So economics is more than just making money. It's, it's really economics in the sense of controlling my world for my betterment in total. Uh, and then from there in the 20th century, then we had the rise of psychological man where is where it became, well, we've got all this kind of stuff locked down, but how does it make me feel? Hmm. And, and the big move in this and all those other aspects, even an economic man, you were worried about the other person, right? You, you had your civic duty. And, and if you were a, a drunkard, you would say, well, you're not contributing to society. If you stole something, you had to pay your debt to society. Now that's all gone. And now it's, well, how does the perpetrator feel? He's a, he's a, he has a sickness. He has an illness. We has to, it, it, so it's become psychological. So this is the first time in humanity where you have a major move in culture from outward to inward, where its feelings are the primary and the ultimate driver of value. And, and it's interesting in that feelings-oriented way of thinking, uh, uh, it's never... It's never uh, their responsibility. Those feelings somehow are not even generated by them. No, it's Hmm. imposed by society. So uh, that even complicates things a little further. And and I do wonder, though, uh, when we talk about this outward-oriented, you know, approach that we've had so far until recently, then we are very much inward-oriented. If there, it was, could it be that it was a reaction to the fact that we didn't focus much on feeling earlier? No, you know what I think it is? I think it is um, there was always external threats, and you had to band together. Even in economic times, even you had world wars. You can't fight a world war on your own. It doesn't matter how you feel. The bomb is coming. We had the Spanish flu. We had, right, there, there was always major devastations that threatened large swaths of humanity, and it took large swaths of humanity, their generosity, their compassion with one another, their uh, interreliance in order to get through those. Our problem, I think, today, one of, at least the way I see it, is people don't any longer feel that they need other people to solve their problems. They think that they're, hey, you know, I can shelter at home as long as the high-speed internet stays up. Mm. But if the high-speed internet doesn't stay up, then somebody else is messing with me. But there's no interreliance. There's no inter. There, there's no understanding of if I don't do this, other people will suffer. I better do it. There's if somebody else doesn't do this, I will suffer. Hmm. See, it's a it's a yeah. it's a difference. Yeah, 
you mentioned the term imminent frame. I know there's lots there, and we're almost uh, on our break. So when we come... When we come back from uh, our break, I, I do want to uh, talk a little bit about Charles Taylor's uh, idea of the imminent frame. He's quite famous for that, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, I, I also, if you're listening, we want to cover how things become part of culture. Uh, I, I think uh, we have special insight in the last 10 months how certain things have become internalized. So I, I hear the music. That means it's time for our break, and we will be back after the break. The mission of Apologetics.com is to challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe on the radio, on the internet, and now in the Life of the Mind conferences. If you believe in the work that Apologetics.com is doing, we encourage you to support us with your prayers and also with your tax-deductible gift so that this ministry will continue on the air, on the web, and in events near you. Gifts of any amount are appreciated, and it's very simple to participate. Just go to Apologetics.com and click Donate. It's safe and secure. Or you can send your check or money order to Apologetics.com, 1900 Southwestern Avenue, San Pedro, California, 90732. Thank you for supporting Apologetics.com. All right, well, welcome back to the second um, 30 minutes of our radio show, the Apologetics.com radio show. I'm Harry Edwards, your host for this evening, and we have been talking about uh, an apologetic subject, but uh, it's almost like an anti-apologetics, but it's not to denigrate the project of apologetics, but our hope is that we can be part of reforming and um, sharpening um, our methods and our tools. So, in the, in the first uh, half hour, we—I uh, know, Lenny—you mentioned the imminent frame. So, it's a concept that uh, Charles Taylor popularized in his book, um, in a secular age, and I think even uh, before that. Um, and he's quite known for that. You, you want to uh, let our listeners or give our listeners a, a tutorial, a little bit of a gist on. What that means? What, what the well, yeah. What Taylor says is, you know, there used to be the enchanted world that that everything we un- saw and understood, we filtered through the concept of God's providence. That it was it was a supernatural world that that people didn't blink twice about angels and demons. Um, of course, they, those were in existence, and of course, they would afflict you because we understood that there was a spiritual war going on. What happened as the scientific enterprise developed was there was a move to separate the natural from the supernatural. And the goal of the early Enlightenment thinkers were to kind of pull out of Aristotle and say there are fundamental laws in which the universe operates that we can know and we can harness. And those hold true, whether you believe in God or maybe even don't. You can still hold to these things. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't believe in God and hold to these natural laws, because you could say God set up the natural laws. But then there became the next step where it was nature does this. Not God does this through his laws, but nature is itself, it becomes a personification of the laws. And then it becomes, it's just the way the universe is. The universe has natural laws. So you don't, you even lose the nature. So therefore you can be an atheist and still understand these natural laws. So it's kind of a move, but the idea is there is a transcendence, right? An idea that there's something beyond are physical, beyond who we are, or there's an imminence. And the word imminence just means here and now, the, the physical, the things that we can touch and see and feel and are right in front of us. And an imminent frame means we just look at the natural laws as laws, but we never think beyond it. Right. And so in, in essence, we are trapped in the imminent frame, and it's hard to look past that. Uh, it reminds me, actually, if I could just add to, to that, uh, Ronald Nash's uh, 
worldview book, he calls it uh, the closed box, mm. where uh, the supernatural cannot penetrate that. And uh, as we know, um, the naturalist, um, materialist, that's, that is their, that's part of their worldview. That's a big part. So they rule out the supernatural to begin with. And uh, they will seek some natural, naturalistic explanation for everything. Right. Uh, and even if they can't come up with one, they will always say they're optimistic. They go, "We will find one." Mm. <laughs> but uh, but but see that that box is, is science tight. of the gaps. And, yeah, and if that's we, right. And if we see historically how this worked out, especially in the academia, is that we can see Harvard, Yale, and Princeton all started as uh, has trinitarian origin. Right. right, and with the whole uh, abandoning of transcendent, we actually threw away revelation as the basis for truth as well. And Unitarians took over yeah. all these institutions, and reason became the only source for truth. And if you see Biola, Moody, all these institutions were kind of reaction to the abandonment of revelation, and these Christian institutions were started. But now what we see is that even reason failed to deliver what it promised. So we abandoned reason, and now we are here in a postmodern culture where, again, the whole idea of feeling taking precedent over anything else. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because really part of what we're trying to communicate this evening is, again, we're all apologists. And uh, and, and I, I am sad that Many of our friends are doing apologetics the old way, and it's it's amazing. We're in an amazing time right now where we are experiencing that shift. So, while rational rationality is good, rationalism might not be so good. Uh, we can't get away from rationalism. All right, I'm not discounting that, but our culture today uh, knows very little about that, and. I'm proposing that we move away from from that uh, in order to accommodate our listeners and our learners, uh, and I'm in, I'm including uh, people in the church as well. Right. And maybe we can uh, toward the end of the show. I'm curious to know you guys what uh, some of your maybe you've imagined a new method. Um, uh- I would like to add this, yeah. Harry. You know, when we engage with each other in 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 the in the project of apologetics, if it's at if it's at the level of ideas, we don't have to enter into ideas. We can engage with each other at the abstract level. But when it comes to culture, because we all are products of culture, it requires of it that at some level we enter into that culture to understand. Uh, the, the necessities that are there in terms of understanding an individual and engaging with them. Uh, and I think it's, it's more valuable given the way the world is, given the way the realities are around us, because uh, we are engaging not merely with ideas now. We are engaging with individuals, with feelings yeah. and emotions, right? right? Ideas are being kept aside. Yeah, yeah. Feelings are being expressed. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned something a while ago that I agree with, Jacob. Uh, I think because we have put rationalism way up on top, we actually have neglected feelings. And I think it's a pushback on that. And both are important. Mm-hmm. Both are important. Uh, and as, uh, you know, uh, if, if anyone is studying psychology or sociology, you know, that's a big part of who we are. We can't deny our emotions. Um, anyone who's married would know that too, for sure. <laughs> but um, all right, so uh, the whole imminent frame thing, and I, I love your genealogy of how we got here, uh, Lenny. Uh, what you described, and to help our leaders, our, our listeners understand some of um, what we're saying, and I would definitely encourage uh, you to read Charles Taylor. He actually makes a uh, distinction among three kinds of secularization, and I appreciate that. Uh, and he, he labels them very simply. Secular one is uh, the classic um, traditional way of understanding a separation, like, you know, you do sacred stuff, so that's the monks, the priests, and then the bakers, the, uh, you know, the uh, the ironsmiths and Whatever the farmers, they're they're more on the uh, uh, sectarian side, more on the secular side. That's secular one. Secular two uh, m- might be again uh, 
superimposed to some of the uh, eras that you've described earlier would be uh, a move toward objectivity. So secular, too, would be like, all right, science is objective. uh, Religion is not. So that's how we separate secular and sacred. Uh, Secular three is more, in my opinion, pernicious because this relates to the imminent frame, the whole Ronald Nash closed box where uh, the supernatural is ruled out from the very beginning. Like we can't imagine, and sometimes it's hard for us because, I I mean, I grew up in the church where it's hard for me to not imagine a, a transcendent God. But in our culture today, we have to understand uh, we have to set aside our our personal upbringing and know that I guess a vast majority now yeah. of uh, Western thinkers and in the U.S. it's becoming more and more uh, the majority that they can't imagine a transcendent being. Yeah. Well, I I think uh, that's Craig, secular three. Craig Hazen uh, has a great story on this when he talks about uh, he had a student in his apologetics program from I believe West Africa. And he was talking to him on the phone. He said, how are things going? He goes, oh, great. You know, we had a prayer revival. We had one per- person was raised from the dead. And he just goes on his day. And, and, and Hazen's like, wait, wait, what do you mean? What, how? And he goes, yeah, well, we had this person. And he fell, and it was uh, terrible. And mom brought him in, carried him in. And uh, we prayed for him. And he, he, he got up. And he goes, yeah. I go, how? And Hazen's going, how can, you, how can you just skip over something like this? He goes, he goes you know, how does this work for you guys? And he goes, the problem why you don't see this in the West, Craig, is because you have 911. Hmm. Right. He goes, what? What do you mean? <laughs> he goes, well, when, you, when somebody gets hurt, what's the first thing that you do? You dial 911, and that's great. 911 is helpful. You know, it brings people there with skills. But uh, in my town, we don't have 911. So what's the first thing that our Christians do? We pray. (laughs) And prayer is our first go-to because that's what we have, and we see results from prayer because we're praying all the time. Right, that's the first go-to for them. Uh, So uh, that's a a nice way to, I guess, um, consider that as their social imaginary. So that's another term that uh, might need unpacking. Uh, but that's just uh, an unconscious way of going about your daily lives uh, back there. So you're right. It's, so for us here in the West, it's 911. And if you're a Christian, 911, and then we pray. Uh, but for Christians— Maybe uh, after you get to the hospital and you put it on Facebook. <laughs> right. <laughs> but in some parts of the world, uh, and you're a Christian, that's the first thing you do. Yes. Because your Heavenly Father is about healing. Yes. That, that's just— his nature. Now, he, he will do that or he won't do that. That's up to him. But, but in, in the West, it's more like we, we have this bargaining management uh, negotiation with God, you know, like, because we're, we're not sure. We doubt that God would heal you, you know, um, because, again, we might justify that or excuse or give God a pass and say, well, God has given us modern medicine. Well, yeah, but he can also just raise you from the dead if you wanted to. <laughs> um, all right, so h- here's another thing that I, I really want to focus on. So we've been talking a lot about psychology, a lot of uh, sociology, and I understand s- some of these um, fields of study is uh, unfortunately and regrettably uh, just seen as suspect in seminaries and in theology. But I feel like God has given us a lot of uh, ways to understand uh, reality. And uh, I personally don't discount these uh, two fields of disciplines off offhand. But I'm curious to know, guys, if uh, we are to make a reading list, hmm. um, what are some of the authors and books that you'd recommend? Well, well you're holding something well, there, yeah, Lenny. I, yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm Still, I'm not finished with it yet, but Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is probably, if you want one book to go to, that's where I'd start. Because what he does is he takes Philip Rife, he takes Charles Taylor, and he takes Alistair McIntyre, uh, who talks about the sexual issues and, and things like that. And he, he kind of synthesizes all of them together in a, in a brief overview 
and puts them all into uh, a, a con- cohesive whole, if you will, to, to say why we are. To- I've been going through this. I actually started this kind of a project maybe 10 years ago. I, I started reading um, Larry Seidentop's The Inventing of the Individual, because that's my, exactly what I – how did we get here today? What what's so how did Christianity get to where it is? So you have you have first the tale of what Christianity created out of Roman Empire and and these kind of warrior classes and cultures. So Sidon Tops inventing the individual, it's Tom Holland, uh, Dominion Dominion, yes. It's mm-hmm. um Rodney Stark's yes. uh, Victory of Reason. It's uh there was who was the other one? Uh even Larry um Oh, uh, destroyer of gods. Um, I can't remember the author now, but there, there are all of these. Uh, I really theological or not theological, historical, academic works that show just what a game changer Christianity was. Yes, yes. And now the next set of books are showing how we're leaving them. So Douglas Murray's "The Madness of Crowds," where he starts talking about uh, critical theory and how it snuck in, where we start believing one another as opposed to, you know, uh, traditional structures that have proven themselves over the test of time and things of that nature. Jacob, do you have any recommendations? I was going to mention Tom Holland, but uh, let me also add a few other books to that. Um, An Indian author, Vishal Mangalwadi. Oh, yeah, great book. Uh, The book That Made Your World would be a great book to read. And also, in addition to that, uh, one of my uh, favorite authors, Oz Guinness. How can we forget him? Uh, I think uh, A Free People's Suicide is a good book to read, Renaissance. Yeah. Um, the Global Public Square is another okay. book that I would recommend. So Oz Guinness, Vishal Mangalwadi, Tom Holland, those are some of the authors I would definitely recommend. Uh, here's my recommendation. Charles Taylor, for sure, must read. I know it's a 600-page tome, but uh, that's a must-read if you want to understand uh, uh, secularity. Uh, and so the title is aptly titled Secular Age. I would definitely pick up Peter Berger's A Rumor of Angels and The Sacred Canopy. Those are two books. Um, I would, um, um, yeah, uh, Cynical Theories would be good. Cynical Cynical Theories. Uh, Anything by um, uh, uh, Lukanoff and uh, who is the uh, New York professor? Why am I blanking out on his name? Um, but anyways, it'll come to me. But uh, yeah, those are some of the, the books that I, I think would be super helpful. And I'll also add one more book, uh, a recent interview that I did with uh, the chair of uh, the Department of History at Central Connecticut University, Dr. Glenn Sunshine. Mm-hmm. His recent book on slaying Leviathan, Limited Government and the Resistance in the Christian Tradition would be a good book to add as well. Mm. Yes, for sure. Oh, yeah, I was going to say uh, Greg Lyakhanoff and uh, Jonathan Haidt. They wrote oh, a yes. yeah. great book, mm-hmm. The Coddling of the American Mind. I would definitely recommend that. And then Mark that. Knowles, The Scandal of the Evangelical yes, Mind. Yes, that is a must-read as well. Um, you know what's another interesting book? And, and one of the more fascinating aspects of critical theory, when you read not only its proponents but its critics— You hear the term Marxism, cultural Marxism, thrown around quite a bit. And yes, out of the Frankfurt School, there were a lot of folks who reinterpreted Marx to say it's not class, it's not economics. Interesting. Again, you had the economic focus with Marx himself. He was an economic man. Now it's it's class in terms of gender or right the psychological so co- critical theory has moved marxism from class structure and class struggle to uh oppressor oppressed based on gender or race or things like that but equally as influential and nobody talks about this is freud hmm. yeah. freud is just if you don't have the id and the and the unconscious and all of that critical theory just falls apart and nobody talks about Freud. There was a great book by uh, uh, Professor Armin Nicoli, who is one of the more popular professors at Harvard. His class was filled, and it was called The Question of God, A Conversation Between Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And what he did was he was an expert on Freud, 
Nicole is an expert on Freud. And what he did was he would, but he was also a Christian. So he would take Freud's writings and he would take Lewis's writings and he juxtaposed them to show as if, now Lewis lived several decades after Freud in his peak, in his uh, highest, you know, popularity. So he knew of Freud and he would sometimes answer, but he would put them almost in conversation on specific aspects of God and, and the nature of religion and morality. And it was a really good little book. It wasn't terribly long, but it was a fun read. So that may be something because people just neglect the Freudian influence in all of this. And I think Freud, even though nobody believes in, you know, uh, Freudian psychoanalytics anymore. Nobody can, you can't get a guy to sit on the couch. It just, they, <laughs> they just say, give me the pills. That's a completely different thing. But Freud made huge subconscious impact in our understanding of ourselves that we still have today. Yeah, yeah well, Truman argues, right, uh, when he talks about Freud, that it's a trade-off between individual sexual desire and the demands of communal living yes. and social preservation. So we want to get away from all the systems so that we can we're not repressed anymore, right? right. So uh, you mentioned uh, subconscious, and uh, a lot of our beliefs and our behavior really they do reside in the subconscious. Yes. Uh, we do things uh, automatically. We wake up and we put on our slippers or whatever. We brush our teeth. I mean, we don't even think about it. And don't we wish that uh, our Christian faith and how we behave, uh, our actions were in some ways um, automatic. That'd be nice if uh, automatically we glorified God in everything we say, do, and and, Mm. and act. Uh, But, you know, really, we do many times compartmentalize our lives. Uh, There's the Monday to Friday work, and then somehow we're different beings on Sunday morning, right? Um, and, and the two don't meet many times. But wouldn't it be nice if our lives weren't that fragmented? And I, I just want to introduce, uh, I, I know we're all big on cultural apologetics, and wouldn't it be nice if we understood how things become part of culture? And uh, here again, I point to Peter Berger uh, in... Um, There's a nice section toward the end of the Sacred Canopy where he actually calls this world-constructing moments. I love it, right? World-constructing moments. So pretty much how how does one construct the world and it becomes a society and becomes part of culture, and we're all part of that? Well, he has this three moments. Uh, You all know it because I gave you guys the cliff notes, right? Externalization is the first uh, moment, and then it moves to objectification, and then internalization is the last process. Now, we're really going to go through this super, super fast, and we might not even have time, but uh, would you guys – do you guys know what uh, briefly the process is from externalization to objectification to internalization? And then once you've mentioned that, what are some of the – things that we've internalized in the last 10 months. Uh, Now, um, what he argues is that social order is not part of the nature of things, um, and it cannot be derived from the laws of nature. So social orders exist only as a product of human activity. So he explains externalization, basically the process whereby individuals, by their own human activity, create their social worlds. Right and objectification, objectification is basically um, meaning is made to appear stable, uh, and the process whereby individuals apprehend everyday life as an ordered, prearranged reality, and that happens through habituation. We create habits, uh, and language plays a major role in that as well. And the last phase is internalization, where the process uh, whereby individuals learn the the legitimize, le- legitimation of institutional order. So. These three processes are involved in terms of creating the social reality within which we live. Yeah, very good. I love it. Spoken like a true scholar there. <laughs> so uh, can, can we think of certain things, uh, which is amazing to me as a, you know, if you're into sociology, you could see how this process, I, I don't know if you're aware of you know, or if you've been attuned to some of the things that have happened in the last 10 or 11 months uh, what what would you mention, or what what example would you give that oh, fit this? Well, look at trajectory? look at look at the response to COVID nineteen versus the nineteen eighteen Spanish flu. Hmm. 
1918 Spanish flu, you had individuals who were sick. You had um, organizations that tried to flag those homes as dangerous. But individuals understood that it was primarily their responsibility and their um, really uh, priority to keep others safe if necessary, but to go on living as well. This response, everybody says the same, what has, why hasn't the government helped us? So, so it moved medicine and, and the idea of, of large-scale crises moved from individuals dealing with individual concerns and groups. There were charities, there were you know larger groups who would deal with that, but it was a communal, local focus. That moved to a more centralized habituation where you got used to the government coming in and helping you with the flood or the hurricane. And, and okay, well, that's great. They're going to give me money. I'm going to re- and then you have the, the internalization to where it's like, well, I know I live in a floodplain or I know I, you know, but the, you know, hey, if I get in, if there's an earthquake, the government's going to come and give me money anyway. We don't even have to worry about that. Or, and now COVID is like, well, why didn't the government have, why didn't the president have a plan? <laughs> right. Why should it start there? Hmm. He doesn't know your neighborhood. He doesn't know how close you people live to one another. Yeah. It, so yeah. that's a that's an easy way to see how this has changed. And, and it's interesting at the final stage of this moment, right? It's internalized and it's a subjective experience, as uh, Berger would also say. So it doesn't matter what uh, reality is. Yeah. It's it's how you feel. Again, it's back to the self. All right. So literally, we have less than two minutes. Um, are we hopeless? What What is the hope of the message of the gospel? I mean, what, uh, what, what, what can we do, guys? I mean, in, in less than two minutes, what are some of your suggestions? I'll reiterate it. And uh, Harry, you mentioned it already. You know, just um, we must have uh, a positive eschatology. And that's what I would uh, push because there's too much of gloom and doom. What we need is that we need to trust the word of God, the promise of Christ, that he is building the church. Uh, and we need to be functioning with that uh, very attitude. At the same time, we need to be very careful, just like the sons of Essekar, uh, understanding the times and be able to fight the fight. And that is necessary. If we understand the times and hide ourselves, that's not going to bear any fruit. The church has throughout the ages seen every kind of response, every kind of action and responded to the point of where it's still around. Look, Elijah hid in the cave and God had to say, there's 7,000 guys who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You don't have to worry. I've got this. So, Oh, that's great. I love it. And maybe we need part two of this show. Yeah. Uh, we just didn't have an, in, enough time. So you've been listening to Apologetics.com radio, where we challenge believers to think and thinkers to believe. Our hope is that you've learned some aspect about our Christian worldview that strengthens your faith and make you want to learn more. I want to say a special thanks to my faithful friends, Jacob and Lenny, and to our uh, engineer back there that makes all the magic happen. So until next time, good night.